morning, church. It is so good to see you all here this morning. Uh, my name is Jesse Holmes. I serve as the discipleship pastor here at Crawford Avenue. And for the past several years, we've been walking through our mission statement as a church, which is to glorify God by making disciples who enjoy, live, and proclaim the gospel. This semester, we are specifically focused on the aspect of our, our mission statement where we are focusing on living the gospel. And as we've been unpacking this part of our mission statement, Pastor Bert has been teaching on newness of life from Romans chapter 6 through 8, and the rest of the elders have been teaching on church life from 1 Corinthians. So as we continue in our mini-series of church life, we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 this morning. So we ask that you will turn to that. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, you will find it on pages 959 and 960. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, found on pages 959 and 960. Hear now God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, it's at this moment as we open to study your word that we declare that we need you. We need your help by the power of the Holy Spirit to not only proclaim your word of truth, but to understand the truth that's in the text. And Father, we need your help to apply the truth that we learn, that we might walk and live in a way that honors you. So Lord, we ask that you will bless this time that we have together, that we might be challenged and encouraged and corrected and convicted by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you might have already figured out from our past two sermons in Corinthians, the church in Corinth is pretty messed up. It is a very hot mess. The city that they lived in was filled with all kinds of debauchery and sin, and the world around them was a hot mess. And the church itself struggled to not reflect the culture and the environment that was around them. Specifically, the church suffered from the tendency to create divisions among themselves. 
from who they believe to be the best teacher to wrongfully upholding one spiritual gift over another, the church struggled to be united. In chapter 12, Paul begins to address the division caused by an inflated view of spiritual gifts by teaching that all the gifts and those that have them were important because they are the body of Christ together. And now that leads us to chapter 13. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is very familiar to many. Hearing these verses might bring you images of your own wedding ceremony, uh, maybe reminds you of a Valentine's Day card that you received, or it just reminds you of multiple aisles at Hobby Lobby. (laughs) However, the context of the letter that Paul is writing, he is communicating a different purpose in mind as he is spelling out and describing what love is. Yes, using it at weddings and Valentine's Day cards and for decorations are fine, but Paul is writing this on the heels of addressing division within the church. And what better way to address division within the church than by reminding them of their identity and what now resides in them? This begs the question, what makes it possible for us, even us here today, as a church, as a body of believers, to be united? Yes, it's true that we all share this commonality that at one point we were dead because of sin and have been made alive because of Christ, but what holds us together? Well, the answer is very simple. It's the love of God. Church life is bound together by love. And as those that have been transformed by the love of God is the same love that binds us together in unity. How is it that the love of God is able to bond us together? Well, Paul describes love in great detail, for it is what binds us together. And he is going to unpack love in such a way that we see it more than just an emotion, more than a word that we throw around flippantly, but it's a reality of who God is and who we now are because of him. So this morning, we want to understand what is this love that binds us together, And Paul, in our text, will describe and explain love in terms of the absence of love, the presence of love, the eternality of love, and the supremacy of love. And those will be our points for this morning. So look back with me at verses 1 through 3 as we understand the absence of love. The absence of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burnt, but have not love, I gain nothing." So Paul begins as he's unpacking and describing to us the reality of the love of God, and as he begins by talking about the absence of love, he does so by presenting three scenarios of no love. Now keep in mind that Paul is talking to a people that have been putting a lot of stock and weight in the spiritual gifts, and that has been the most recent cause of their division. And so, scenario one. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, this emphasis is on having the best speech in all heavens and earth. 
Now, the Corinthians thought very highly of those that spoke well. It was a part of the culture in the city that they lived in. People would pay lots of money to hear someone that speaks beautifully, just to listen to what they have to say. The more eloquent, the more impressive, the more sophisticated the speaker, the more money you were able to dish out because you desired to hear that speaker. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul wanted the cross of Jesus, not his master over the human tongue, to be the focus of his message. And so on one side, you have an example of someone whose words are magnificent, but without love, minus the love of God being in them and the motivation of their words, Paul says that they are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, I am not a musician. I'm not a music person. Uh, My understanding of instruments are very basic, so let me make that clear. But on the screen, you will see uh, these two instruments, the gong and the cymbal. I found them online. I think this is what they look like. And the reality of these two instruments is you're not going to go to a concert and just see one person with a gong just sitting there hitting it and singing a song. You're not going to go to an orchestra and like pay all that money and just see someone with cymbals just clanging them together. The reason why is because the reality of these two instruments, they are not intended to be played in isolation. They are a great accompaniment with other instruments in an orchestra or in a band, but they are not intended to carry a melody so that you can sing beautifully to them. I don't think that John Ross would ever lead us in worship using one of these instruments alone, because apart from other instruments, it's just a loud and startling sound that just rings out. In other words, you could say that the noise that these two instruments make are very uh, annoying and noisy and can be offensive to the ears. Now, what's also interesting is that the gong in this culture was used to get rid of demons. So other religious people will get that gong, and they're not singing beautiful noises to the Lord. They're making loud noises to get all the demons away. And so what is Paul's point right here? Paul's point is simply this. Without the love of God being the motivation, all the fancy and elegant words are simply empty. It's just a loud noise that is just ringing out that's offensive to the ears. Because without the love of God, the motivation is self and pride and arrogance. And so Paul says, he makes it very clear that the motivation of the love of God is so essential that it actually determines the value and the impact of the words that we communicate. And so it's great that you understand the realities of God and that you're able to communicate the realities of God. But without love, it's just a bunch of noise. Scenario two, found in verse two. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as so to remove mountains... Now, what Paul is doing right here by describing prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, what he's communicating is this gift of understanding the realities of God. 
that prophetic powers, what they communicate is God is revealing knowledge about himself to this person through prophecy, and they're able to communicate it to other people. Now, you will notice that Paul uses all over and over again, understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith. Paul is describing an exaggerated person. We, we know nobody has all knowledge. No one has all understanding. No one has all faith. But he is inflating this imaginary person to prove a point. And then he, further, he goes on further to say, not only that, but they have all faith, so as to move mountains. Now, at first look, you might be reminded of Matthew chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus talks about having faith that moves mountains. But as you compare, Jesus talks about having small faith, simple faith to move mountains. But this person in this scenario, he is saying that he has all faith. And because of the large amount of faith, he's able to move all the Rockies out of the way just because of the faith that he has. The Corinthians would have seen people like this with these abilities as MVPs. Man, they have amazing abilities, and therefore they are declared as great among men because they're able to reveal and display the power of God with their prophetic powers and with their faith. They may think that they are something because of their abilities, but what Paul says again Because there is no love, there's no motivation and power of love, they are nothing. They think that they're all that in a bag of chips, but they're nothing with no bag of chips at all. They are simply nothing. Because the motivation of the love of God is so essential that it determines the worth of our abilities. And finally, in verse 3, If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burnt... What an amazing sacrifice, right? So you have this Corinthian saying, you know, all this stuff that I have, I'm giving it all up. And not only that, even my body. I'm about to give my body up to be burned. So at first look, you look at this person and you're saying, man, he is so amazing. What a hero he is. But what you will notice is, who is he giving, to whom is he giving all of his things to? It's not mentioned. And for what cause and for what purpose is he delivering his body up to be burned? It is not mentioned. Why not? Because the person in the scenario is the focus of the scene. It's not about who he's given the money to. It's not about the reason he's burning his body. It's all eyes on me. Everybody, I'm giving my money. Don't, don't ask me where I'm giving it to. Just recognize I'm giving up all my money. And you know what? Oh, I'm about to go to the stake. I'm about to go to the stake so that I can be burned. And so at first glance, the Corinthians would see a person like this and say, whoa, he is so amazing. He is so cool. Everybody should look at him. But the reality is it is absent of love. And without that love, there's no uh, pat on the back. There's no applause. Because without the motivation of the love of God at work in them, their deeds are in vain. And so Paul's point is clear. Without love, words, ability, and deeds are empty and pointless. It's easy for us to judge someone's spiritual maturity based on their articulation of Scripture or their abilities that they have or deeds that they do. 
But Paul wants us to understand that the true evidence of growth and maturity is directly connected to their love. All that we have and all that we know and all that we do, do you not understand that it's intended to increase our love for God and for one another? So, what does it look like when love dwells in the heart of men? What does it look like when the love of God is present in us and in our church? Well, Paul will answer this question as he describes, point two, the presence of love, found in verses four through seven, the presence of love. Again, it reads, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. In this very popular section of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul describes what love looks like when it is manifested in a person that has the love of God. And to do this, what Paul does is he gives 15 brief descriptions of what love is. He begins by giving two overall descriptions of love. It is both patient and it is kind. Love is patient in that patience describes us not putting ourselves first. It's not putting our preferences first. When love is present, there is patience. When we are impatient, we are valuing ourselves more than someone else or something else. When we're in the line at Chick-fil-A and we're angry and frustrated, it is that we believe that we deserve the chicken sandwich more than the people in front of us. When the kids are frustrated in the line at the slide, it is that they see that their enjoyment is more important than the enjoyment of the kids on the slide. When we have the love of Christ, when the love of Christ is in us, when it is present, we see that there's patience. And next second, we see that there's kindness, which is the opposite of being harsh and severe. When love is present, there's no room for considering, for not considering the feelings of another person. That's the essence of kindness. We look at one another and we consider how they feel and what they're thinking. And our actions are to be encouraging. And the way that we see the love displayed, we see it displayed in the kindness. So the first two is that love is patient and kind. Now, you will notice that for the next five, Paul uses negatives. And all of these negatives are all connected back to specific rebukes and corrections that Paul has been addressing throughout this letter so far. He specifically is addressing the root issues that's plaguing the church of pride and jealousy and dissatisfaction and competition and so on. And so he says, love does not envy or boast. When love is present, there is no room for looking at someone else with a sinful want, also known as jealousy. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. When love is present uh, in our hearts and in this place, there's no room for bragging about the gifts that we have or the accomplishments that we've made, knowing that they are a gift given to us and not earned or merited in and of ourselves. 
Love is not arrogant or it is not prideful. When love is present, there's no room to be puffed up or to think highly of oneself. No matter the gifts or the abilities or the knowledge that you have, it's not arrogant. Love is not rude. Another way to articulate this is love does not dishonor others. So specifically, this could relate to a disposition where one is like pushing their way through to make room for themselves. You might see this in a a conversation. You're talking about someone and someone's like, you know what, I have a story to share too. Or maybe you're physically standing with someone. The imagery that should come to mind is that they're pushing through and say, hey, I have something to say. When love is present, there's no room for pushing others aside for your own sake. It does not insist on its own way. When love is present, there's no space for you being self-seeking or self-absorbed. Paul speaks to this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 that we read earlier. He says again, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Love is not irritable. When love is present, there's no space for being easily annoyed or provoked to anger. Why not? Well, the first reality is we're all annoying. We're all frustrating to someone at some point in time. And the reality is, if I have a right view of myself and I know that I'm annoying and I can be frustrating, then how do I not extend grace to someone that is annoying me or frustrating me? It does not provoke us towards sin because we remember that I was dead in my sin. My sin provoked God to anger, but while we were yet sinners, God showed his love for us through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. Love is not resentful. When love is present, there is no space for keeping a record of wrongs. That's the essence of being resentful. You're holding on to the things that were done to you that hurt you instead of forgiving and letting go. Why? Why does love, when love is present, why do we not keep a record of wrongs? Because the love of God led to our forgiveness. And so if we understand the reality of our forgiveness, we will not resent. We will not keep a record of wrongs, but we will forgive. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. What a word to use, right? Rejoice. So think about this idea. When we think about rejoicing, you're excited, you're celebrating, you're clapping, you're shouting. And what Paul says to this church is, hey, guys, When the love of Christ is present in your heart and in your room, there's no delighting or rejoicing in wrongdoing. And those in the church were delighting and rejoicing in wrongdoing. Those that engage in sexual morality of chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians. Those that were engaged in lawsuits of chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. Those that were indulging themselves during the Lord's Supper of chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, all of them were delighting in wrongdoing. When love is present, there's no room for delighting in wrongdoing. But instead, Paul says, rejoices with the truth. 
when love is present. The rejoicing and the delighting comes when truth and righteousness reigns. When the gospel is proclaimed, there's rejoicing and delighting. When, when there's love that's filling in the church and people are encouraged and uplifted, and there's rejoicing and delighting because truth and righteousness reigns. When those that are less fortunate are being cared for, there's rejoicing and delighting because truth and righteousness reigns. When disciples are being matured, when a culture of discipleship is spreading, when the nations are receiving the gospel, the church together rejoices and delights because righteousness and truth reigns. And this is happening here at Crawford. And so why, when we gather, do we rejoice and do we delight with one another? Because here in this building among God's people, the truth of God and the righteousness of God is reigning. Praise be to God. But within the church in 1 Corinthians, you see that wrongdoing is taking place and nothing is happening. No one is saying anything. No one is correcting. No one is standing up for truth and righteousness. But when love is present, that is what takes place. There is rejoicing, and there's delighting in truth and righteousness. And now for the final four verbs that we see here in our text, each of them are accompanied with the phrase, all things. Now, this is not an exaggeration like Paul used in verses 1 through 3. But what Paul is showing here by having the phrase, all things, he is communicating this idea. He was showing us that the power of the love of God that happens within a believer, it comes from God. It is stoked by God. It is encouraged by God. The only way that we can do all of these things is with the help of God. And so what are these things? Well, he says, love bears all things. That means that we bear with one another, not counting their sins against them. We are sticking with them no matter the mess that they cause, trusting that the sovereign Lord will give you the strength to walk with them. So when the love of God is present, we bear with one another. It believes all things. That means it's eager to believe the best. This is not talking about being gullible or being willing. This is not talking about being gullible or tricked. It's talking about being willing to give the benefit of the doubt. Believes all things. Extending the, the, extending the benefit of doubt to everyone. Why? Because this love is trusting, this person that has this love is trusting that the sovereign Lord will take care of you even if you are betrayed. Hopes all things. The refusal to take failure as the final declaration. Instead of having a negative outlook, which is where our hearts are saying that evil will win, when the love of Christ is in us, we have a positive outlook. Our hearts are declaring the sovereign Lord who reigns will have his way, which is for his glory and for our good. That is the beauty of the hope that comes from the love of Christ that dwells in us. And finally, endures all things. The picture that should come to mind is a picture of a warrior in the heat of a battle. So if you just imagine this dude with a sword and a shield, and he's fighting, and the enemies are like all around him. And he's just like fighting them, like fighting them, all, all sides. 
Instead of giving up and being defeated and allowing the enemies to overtake him, the image is with this enduring all things, he continues to fight with vigor and passion. He keeps fighting and keeps fighting, even when it seems like the odds are against him. In the same way, the love of God empowers us to keep persevering in all things. Whether it's with one another, we're having to endure the sin of one another, or whether it's enduring the sin of the world, or having to endure and push through the sin of our flesh, when the love of Christ is dwelling in us, and we're like a mighty warrior that's fighting and fighting and fighting and will not give up or give in. All 15 of these descriptions, this is love. This is the love that should inhabit every believer. I, in studying this passage, realized that I was wrong. I realized that my thinking about this passage had just been very off, and that I was under the impression that what Paul is doing is giving us a list in order to judge if someone truly loves or cares for us. And so you look at this list, man, this person is not doing these things. Man, they don't love me. They don't care about me. That's not what Paul is trying to communicate right here. No, 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 no. These descriptions is of someone that either has the love of God in them or does not. It's not fixated on how someone is interacting with you and you and you and me, but it's just two. It's either they have the love of God in them and these are the fruit of the love of God that's dwelling in them, or they do not have the love of God in them and nothing is coming out. Maybe you see kindness here and there, but you don't see a consistent pattern of all of these descriptions of what love is. This love shows no partiality. So we're not even talking about like this person is able to show these things toward their wife or toward their kids and maybe some of this toward a stranger or church member. But the simple reality is this. These are the fruit of the love of God that dwells within a person. So the question isn't, how do I make these things come out more? The question isn't, how do I love other people in this way more? This is what the question is. How do I stop hindering the manifestation of the love of God within my, all my relationships with my own sin? The question is, how do I stop hindering the manifestation of the love of God in all of my relationships with my sin? And the only way that we stop hindering the love of God being displayed to all people at all times is by humbly coming to the Lord and saying, will you open my eyes to see the sin that still resides in me? And will you help me to say no to selfishness and no to pride and no to envy and no to jealousy and no to arrogance? Will you help me to say no to all of these things so that your love that dwells in me might shine forth for all to see and that the church of God might be encouraged and might be lifted up? That's the question that we must ask. Because the reality is, the love of God is either in you or it's not. And if it's in you and you're recognizing that some of these things are not coming out, just humble yourself before the Lord and ask for his help 
that you might walk in a way that brings him honor and glory. Next, Paul describes the eternality of the love of God, how it continues to go on and on and on. Look with me at verses 8 through 12. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul begins by giving this powerful statement of truth about love, that love will never end. By that, he is saying that love will never suffer ruin. Love is not temporary, but it will remain forever. With this opening statement, Paul is expounding by comparing the fact that love will never end, but these prophecy, prophesying, knowledge, these abilities, these spiritual gifts that the Corinthian church has an inflated view of that those things will end or will pass away. So you see here in the text, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What does it mean by pass away that he mentions twice? Well, Paul is saying that a day will come where prophecy and tongues and knowledge will cease to be needed. And that pass away in that day is when Christ returns. That there is a day when all things will be made new and Christ will return. And what Paul is communicating is that on that day, when we stand before our God and King, there will be no need for those spiritual gifts that this church is hyping up all the time. We don't need someone to reveal the the intricacies of God because we see him face to face. We don't need anyone to tell us, hey, this is what God is like. This is what you need to do to please God. Because we see him face to face. And so the reality is that all of these spiritual gifts that the Corinthian church is hyping up and making much of is only temporary. The purpose is temporary for the benefit of the church. And so to communicate this, uh, this idea more deeply, Paul gives us two illustrations. So in the first illustration, what we see is he's talking about being a child and being a man. First, Paul uses this imagery in verse 11 when he says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Now, with this statement, Paul is not condemning children. He is not speaking harshly about them at all. What Paul is doing is he's describing, using humans as an example, this idea of partial versus complete. Children, the stage of being a child, that is not the final stage. Because that will be weird, right? Like children are just like the final stage of humans, and I don't know what that means for us. Maybe it's like Benjamin Button. We're going backwards. That's not the way that it's intended. Like, children are not the final stage. 
Also, we know, even as adults, how funny it is when children think or teenagers think that they know everything, that they have arrived, that they have completed the maturation process. Paul is saying that in the past, when we look at human development, a child is a partial human. And by design, this stage of the human should pass away or should end. That children do not remain as five forever, but they go from five to seven to ten to fifteen to twenty-five. And so the reality is that Paul continues on by describing, however, when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now, growing up um, in the church that I grew up at, adults would always use this to tell young men, stop playing video games, don't play with toys. Like Paul says that when he became a man, he gave up childish ways. And that is not the purpose of this text. That is not what Paul was trying to explain. So men, continue to enjoy your video games and go outside and play tag sometimes. It's totally okay. But again, what Paul is trying to describe here is in the process of the partial giving way to the full, to the incomplete giving way to the complete, that when you enter into this new stage, the way that you used to think and reason and spoke and did, those childlike things go away because you have matured into a man. And again, he's not thinking about hobbies or activities. He's specifically thinking about this process of maturity. Within human development, the purpose is for a human to go from a baby, child, teenager to a grown adult, man or woman. And so in this first illustration, Paul is explaining, guys, I've told you, those, those spiritual gifts are going to go away in the same way that a child does not stay a child forever, but their childlikeness gives way to being an adult. Second illustration, Paul is now talking about a mirror. And when he talks about the mirror, he says this in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Paul is referring to us truly beholding Christ Jesus. The spiritual gifts function like looking at a reflection. So these spiritual gifts specifically that Paul has been talking about that's been causing division, the purpose of the prophecies and the knowledge and the tongues were to give us an idea of who God is to help us to see who God is. But the reality is a reflection is not a person in themselves, right? You know this. Like if you look in the mirror and you have some cheese on your face, you don't wipe the mirror to get the cheese off your face. You look at the mirror and then you wipe your face. And so in the same way, Paul is saying, hey, your spiritual gifts are not the reality, Like the things that are coming from the spiritual gifts is not the reality that is to come. It's not Jesus himself, but a day is coming when we would see Jesus face to face. And so there will be no need for a mirror. Like, why would you carry a mirror around? Like Jesus is behind you and you're holding up a mirror. Jesus, it's so good to see you. I'm so grateful. No, you get rid of that mirror. Who cares about a mirror? I want to hug my Lord and King. I want to thank him. I want to bow at his feet. And so the purpose of the mirror is now done. Goes in the trash. You're done. Thank you. But it's over. 
And in the same way, again, as Paul is trying to help this church fix their problems with division that is caused by an inflated and wrong view of spiritual gifts, he is articulating that, hey, these spiritual gifts, man, they, they do their job well, but we don't cling hold to them because we want to cling to the reality of Jesus who is to come. And so right now, because of these spiritual gifts, we know in part, but when we see him face to face, we will know him fully. We will love him fully. We will understand fully, just as we currently right now are fully known. All of this, all of this that Paul is talking about here in this text is to simply communicate that love will never end. That's how he started, right? Love never ends. All these other things will end, but love will last forever. Therefore, our aim, our measure for maturity, is not the God-given spiritual gifts, but the love of God which resides within us. I know that I'm growing up not because I know more or can do more or can say more, but because my love for God and for others is increasing, more and more. I've just seen more consistently all of the truths of the love of God being on display. That is the true measure of maturity. And so we've seen the reality of the absence of love. We understand the presence of love and the fact that love is eternal. Finally, Paul ends in verse 13 by describing to us the supremacy of love. The supremacy of love. Verse 13 So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the conclusion. Paul's goal has been to correct the Corinthians' improper view of spiritual gifts that's been resulting in division by describing the priority of love. And so he begins by saying, so now, whereas the spiritual gifts will end at the coming of Christ, Faith, hope, and love will abide and they will remain. Now, you might be asking the same question that I asked when studying this. But isn't it true that, like, we won't really need faith or hope anymore because we see Jesus face to face? And yes, in a sense, that is true. The the way that we interact with faith and hope, it will not be the same when we see Jesus face to face. We will not need to have faith in what is unseen because we will see it. We will not need to have hope of a future because the future will be the present. But the reality is faith is, in a way, a resting and relying on God. Will we resting and rely on God in heaven? Oh, yes. Yes, we definitely will. Faith will look different. And hope is not just looking forward to the return of Christ. It's also looking forward to the enjoyment of being in the presence of God forevermore. Will I every day for eternity be reaping the enjoyment of being in the presence of God? Oh, yes, I will. And though time will not be the same that it is, our hope and our faith will be on a whole new level. So they will remain. But even still, the greatest of the three, as we are with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and one another, the greatest of the three will be love. The love of God will be our greatest joy, enjoyment forevermore. 
because we were dead in our sins. And while we were dead in our sins, the love of God was made known through Jesus Christ on the cross. His death, his resurrection, his exaltation all displayed the love of God. And when we trust in him and repent of our sins, when we look to him and say that we are a sinner and we need you, and the love of God resides in us. So what should be our response to all of this? As Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, as a group of believers that live here and now, what is our response to all of these things? In a place here in this building, in a place where there's possibility of division, in a place where there's possibility of hurt, in a place where there's a possibility of differences of opinions, in a place where there's possibility of offense, in a place where there's possibility of attitudes, May our lives and our church life be characterized by the love of God that dwells within. And when those other things come up, may we lean more into the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ is the solution to division. And so when the division starts to take place, we remind ourselves, no, no, Christ has saved me and he has saved you and the love of Christ is in me and it is in you. And so I will display the love of Christ and the fruit of that will be unity of the body of faith. This is what love truly is. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we cannot thank you enough for Christ Jesus who came and died and rose again and is now seated on your right-hand side. Father, we're so grateful for the gift of salvation, and we're so grateful that you did not just save us as individuals, but you have called us to come together in the context of community. Father, you are aware that our flesh and the enemy and the temptations of the world can so easily lead us to be divided here within this body. But Lord, in those moments where we are tempted to divide, will you remind us of your love that is within? Remind us of the love that saved us and has brought us together. And will you every single day help us to conform more and more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. Thank you for this time. Help us to apply these truths that we might walk in a way that honors you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.